Music team, thank you for being good stewards of God's varied grace. You have served us in leading us in song. Thank you. And, and to those serving in the nursery right now, thank you for being good stewards of God's varied grace to serve us. For those who have helped set up the room, for those who have, uh, those who work behind the scenes, uh, counting the offering, those who, who do things that nobody sees. Thank you for being a good steward of God's varied grace to serve us this morning and throughout the week. Well, I want to invite you to join me in the scriptures this morning as we uh, take up the word of God. And uh, we're looking at Genesis chapter 1. Our Bible text this morning is verses 26 through 31. And in the church Bible, you'll find that on page... One. Page one. All right, Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 31. This is the uh, sixth day of creation. Let's hear God's word as is being read. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful. And multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. I trust that you are grateful that we can share it together and read from it. Would you pray with me? We need the Lord's help to listen. I need the Lord's help to speak. Father in heaven, this is your word. Breathed out by your Holy Spirit, it is living. It is active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. You have spoken it in order that we may be sanctified because it is your truth. You have spoken it that we may know you, that we may become wise to salvation in Jesus. And so, Lord, as the one who is mediating this word to your people this morning, I ask for your grace, control my tongue, direct my thoughts. And, Lord, for all of us, we need to hear, not from a man, but we need to hear from you. So and we pray that that would happen, that your word your living and active and divine word would be planted in our hearts to bring the effect that you want in our lives. 
And all of this we pray for the glory of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you've uh, ever spent much time pondering your own existence. Uh, It's not just the stuff of philosophers. All kind of people do this. But when they say your own existence, not just who you are among fellow humans, but the very fact of humanity itself. That we exist, of course, is self-evident. Philosophers have concluded, as Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore, I am, being, is related to thought. But the fact of why we exist, that's a question certainly some have grappled with. Some say we simply evolved from organic goop millions of years ago, billions of years ago even. So it's uh, slime plus chance plus time as an equation. But I believe the question of the purpose of human existence can only be answered by, of course, looking to the one who made us. Those who know the answer to the question are those who actually know their creator. And fortunately for us, God has not left us to grope in the dark on the matter. The meaning of humanity, our purpose for existence has been given to us in the scriptures and specifically in this text that we read together this morning. We exist to bear the imago dei, the tselem Elohim, the image of God. Now, the Pentateuch, Genesis is part of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Really, that's the story of how God set apart a people unto himself and for his own glory. And here in the beginning of Genesis, we come to understand how God first prepared a place for his people and then formed man to occupy that place in order that he, the Lord God, might dwell with his people. God created that place that we, the people of God, might dwell with him. Now, this, uh, this passage of Scripture speaks of the image of God, that God created man in his own image. So what is that image? Of course, there's been a much debate among the exegetes throughout the centuries on what this actually means. But I think the answer is clear. When we look just beyond the creation narrative here, and we look to Genesis 5.3, and it tells us there, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So effectively, the likeness and image began with God, who is in a sense father to Adam. And ultimately, in Adam and Eve, male and female, God's intent was to begin a generation of sons and daughters who carry out, filling the land, ruling over the land, and enjoying it as an expression of their very nature as image bearers of God. Now we know we're going to look ahead and we're going to be moving ahead in a few weeks. We'll look at how the image of God would soon be marred by Adam's own sin. However, that image was not eliminated. And the imperatives for humanity to act in light of that image, those imperatives remain. So this morning, as we explore this passage of Scripture before us, I I want us to see from the text what it means for us to be image bearers of God. As image bearers, we have been blessed by God 
to reflect his power, his wisdom, and his glory as we, as we, the people of God, as we created in God's image, as we multiply in the land, rule the land, and enjoy the land. And that's my outline for this morning. So, we have been created in the image of God to multiply in the land, to rule the land, and to enjoy the land. First, we've been created in God's image to multiply in the land. Now, there are probably a few exceptions to this, but I would say that the vast majority of people in the world, they organize their lives in such a way as to ensure that part of their own legacy is children. Children. Now, we know that Though the tradition of marriage has been corrupted by counterfeits like same-sex unions, it's still, it's still true that people put a, a very high priority on having children to the point that even when there are circumstantial or, or physical impediments to, to conception, there are vast amounts of money that are spent to facilitate it. And this, this drive is so compelling to have children that ethical boundaries are routinely crossed with, with technologies such as in vitro fertilization and surrogacy. And even though much of the world and the whole world has in fact been disordered by sin, people are still profoundly compelled to have children. And why is this? I believe it is the outworking of having been created in the image of God. God creates Man procreates. It is integral to our humanity. Look at verse 28 with me. It says there, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, fill the land. Now, I take it that when God says, Be fruitful and multiply, it has the full force of a divine imperative. It is a command. But look at this. Before it's even a command, it's a blessing. God blessed them and said. Now, what's a blessing? A blessing is, is a good thing given by God. God is saying, here's something that will be for your joy. Be fruitful. Multiply. I think we instinctively get this, don't we? Even the most overtly wicked person will delight in the birth of his child. And parents, you remember this. You will not quickly forget that moment you laid your eyes on that newborn and how your heart was filled with that profound joy. Some of you parents, a recent experience. But we don't forget that, do we? In fact, the psalmist said this. Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Children are a reward, a compensation, if you will, from the Lord for being created in his image. And as image bearers of God, he has provided for mankind a joyful way to experience the blessing of being fruitful and multiplying. Look back at verse 26. He says there, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us. You see that? 
Now, I don't want to stretch this too far. I'm not saying that this verse by itself provides for us a, a fully orbed doctrine of the Trinity. But what is in view here is that God is clearly revealing himself as a plurality, more than one person. So with that in mind, we look to verse 27. So God created man, God the plurality, the us says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So after God's own likeness and in his own image, an aspect of God's essence is as a plurality, a more than one, he likewise assigns to humanity a plurality. And then mankind fulfills an aspect of his image-bearing responsibility as procreators through male and female. Male and female. Distinct. Now, I'm going to take a sidebar here. A lot of attention has been given uh, lately to the whole matter of transgenderism. And given what Genesis says here, as Christians, we need to be clear about the implications of what God is saying in this text that we looked at. So I'm going to say this. It is a denial. It is a denial of God's design to suggest, as are an increasing number in our society, that gender is fluid. It is a denial of God's design. It is absurd for someone to say, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Biology and ontology should not be dissonant. Who you feel like should agree with what you are physically. Or there is something clearly wrong. Now, we live in a fallen world, and the effects of sin wreak havoc in our lives, not only in, in physical disease and dangers, but in our minds, right? Depression, Suicidal thoughts, anxiety, irrational fears, and dysphoria, discomfort, dis-ease of all kinds. So, we know this. When it is in the human ability to correct, say, a cleft palate, a child is born, we, we do that. We surgically correct. If there's a heart defect and a host of any other disorders, we do seek to correct them medically. And when it is in our power to do so, we also seek through counseling and, and pharmacological interventions to help one who, is, who has suicidal thoughts, right? We don't celebrate the suicidal individual as an identity. It is the compassionate thing to help and correct mental disorders, not celebrate them. Likewise, we were created either male or female. And if you feel the opposite of your body, that does not fundamentally change what you are. If you have gender dysphoria, your feelings are wrong, not your body. I realize in saying that, our YouTube can't, uh, channel could just get canceled right out of hand. I know that's a possibility. But that's the implications of what the scripture says. God created them male and female. It's not fluid. 
See, for mankind to fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply, there must be distinction. We get this biologically, right? But there must be distinction. Male and female, he created them. Mankind is a plurality and therefore has been designed to procreate. So what are we to do with this? Multiply. Fill the earth. Multiply. Fill the earth. Now, of course, this command which is also a blessing. This command is subject to other divine constraints, right? Like marriage between a man and a woman, as described. We'll see it in later in chapter 2, verse 24. But again, this is a blessing and a command from the Lord that is in keeping with the very image of God that some in our culture regard as a curse. Now, maybe you're familiar with extreme environmentalism, the kind that advocates for population control. It's the thinking that more people means more carbon pollution and the consuming of resources, which somehow is injurious to the earth. But I would say this as well. To advocate for population control is to deny that we were created in the image of God. The Lord says, fill the earth so if God created the earth and everything in it, again, this is just logic here, don't you think he can manage the implications of his command? So get married, if you can. Have lots of children. That's a blessing. Now, I want you to hear me on this. I realize that not everyone who has the desire to be married does marry. Certainly, there are those, perhaps some among us, who have received singleness as a gift from the Lord. I also realize that there are married couples who, for any number of reasons, cannot or indeed should not conceive. So, if you have not been married or if married and you cannot conceive, that does not mean, hear me, it does not mean that you are any less made in the image of God. I don't want that conclusion. And that's not what the scripture is telling us. Human marriage is a gift of God to humankind for one of the purposes of picturing, first of all, his own covenant love for his people, but the practical outworking for the land, for the earth, is populating it. God delights in that. And especially in regard to his own people. Listen, listen to the prophet Malachi. He was addressing the unfaithfulness of his, the Israelites in their own marriages. And the, the, through, through the prophet, the Lord said this about marriage. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. God wants godly offspring. So be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that, that blessing is a collective expression of humanity bearing the image of God. And each of us participate in that blessing to the degree that God allows, given our circumstances. And God has given further gifts in the land to sustain what he gives us to do, that being fruitful and multiply. There's some implications of this. And, and I know the voices in our culture 
For some of us, we might need to be realigned to what the Scripture has to say. So do not give in to the lie that bringing children into the world is a bad thing. Some would suggest that it is. That doing so hurts the environment. Do not give in to the lie that having many children is irresponsible. And I have heard this one whispered in the church. Oh, do they really need to have another? You should look at them and say, the Lord bless you. You see a big family with lots of kids? And, and I'm not impugning those who have just a few. Each is, does what they can do in the place in life that God has given to you. But certainly, certainly let's not be those kinds of people that look down our noses at those who have the minibus to transport their family around. They're so in keeping with the heart of God from the beginning to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Secondly, as image bearers of God, we've been created in His image to rule over the land, to rule over the land. Now, wicked kings and, and despots, tyrannical dictators, totalitarian regimes throughout history, they have made us, probably rightly so, suspicious of those who would rule. The very founding of this nation, throwing off the, the oppression of King George, right? But something that is true, the best kings and leaders have understood one essential truth, that their own rule, their authority is ultimately a stewardship of trust given by God. King David, he was, he was anointed by God. God put him there. He was not seeking it. At the beginning of his reign as king, Solomon understood that he was a little child before God, and so he asked God to give him wisdom for, for ruling God's people. A king is a steward. You see, that which God has made, and that's everything, what he's made, he rules. He is sovereign over all. And because of his very nature, he cannot ever surrender the ultimate authority over all things. But when God made man in his own image, he gave man the stewardship of authority over a part of what God had made, the land. And as man lives in light of having been created in the image of God, he has been given dominion. Verses 26 and 28 give us the scope of that delegated authority. Verse 26, the Lord says, And let them have, the man, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 28, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what does man have dominion over? Fish, birds, animals, insects, the entire animal kingdom. And I take it that this dominion also includes those things that sustain the life of the animal kingdom, that which grows on the earth. Now, at this point, very beginning of human history, man is not permitted to use any of the animals for food. But this dominion that God has granted mankind, this dominion does foreshadow his right to do so when God permits it after the flood. And so if we ask the question, why does God give man this dominion? What's the purpose of this rule? It is human flourishing. 
So, yes, we humans, as has been often said, are at the top of the food chain. Now, to some in our world, this idea is, is offensive, that we would have dominion. That's offensive. Those who think it's offensive hold to a doctrine, I would call it a religion, and I've mentioned it already, of environmentalism. And I will say this, environmentalism denies the image of God in humanity. Here's, here's the essence of environmentalism. It's a theory that views environment rather than hereditary, and I think they mean by that human hereditary, heredity, I should say. The environment is the important factor in the development and especially the cultural and intellectual development of an individual group. So whatever culture there is, the environment is the point of the development of that culture. So then, number two, advocacy of the preservation, restoration, or improvement of the natural environment is the point of human existence, according to environmentalism. So the assumptions here are that human culture is subject, that is to say, subservient to the environment. The environment should be preserved in its natural state. That is to say, ideally, it is untouched, left untouched by human civilization. Now, you can see the problem with that if you work out that doctrine perfectly. You see, the hierarchy, as God has designed it, is to put man in dominion over the land and everything in it, including the environment. What environmentalism does is it inverts that. It flips it upside down and assumes that the environment has dominion over man. That's why I say it's a denial of the very image of God to embrace that philosophy. So what is man to do with this dominion? He is to be a steward of the land for what, for what God intended. What did God intend for the land? human flourishing. So, as humans, as man, in the image of God, we are to manage the land. We are to manage the creatures, the plants. We are to till the ground. We are to grow crops. We are to breed cattle, sheep, and horses. We are to mine the resources. We may extract the oil. We, might, we may harness the waters and the wind, use the forests, plant them again, rule over the land for human flourishing. Now, I've been exploring my heritage lately. I've sharing this with Bobby the other day and my family as well. Uh, my ancestors lived in a place in the present-day Ukraine. This is uh, leading up to the beginning of the 20th century. These uh, Czech Baptists in Volinia, they settled there seeking religious freedom. And what did they do there? They cleared the land and they farmed it. Now, when they felt like the oppression of communism was, was bearing down on them, they all emigrated en masse to Minnetonis, Manitoba, where once again, they cleared the land and they farmed it. Now, if they were environmentalists, I was thinking about this, they'd have had to live in the forest eating whatever grew. And I don't think I'd be here today if that's what they did. And what they did was they tamed the land to make it suitable for their families. They did right. They were living out their identity as image bearers of God, whether they understood that to be or not. For them, it was survival. They ruled the land. So if, as image bearers, we are to fill the earth, fill the earth and multiply and fill the earth, 
If we want to live in the Australian outback or the high Arctic or the wilderness in the Yukon Territory of Canada or the deep Amazonian jungle, we can. And when we go to those places, we'll have to tame the tundra, the forest, the rivers, the fish, the birds, and the animals. If I live in Alaska and a grizzly bear decides he wants what's in my pantry, or worse, to have me as his next meal, it's a no-brainer. I'm going to find a way to eliminate that bear. I will tame the land. Now, truth be told, he'd probably win, but whatever. <laughs> in the ideal world, I would win over the bear. You see, we rule over the bear. He does not rule over us. That's what God said. And as image bearers, we must hold that in view. So this idea in environmentalism that if something in its natural state is the ideal state, and I get it, certainly there are some, some nat natural treasures that we want to preserve because they are rare, and the aesthetic beauty of them far outweighs any practical benefit that we might receive. And think of the, the majestic redwood in California. We're not cutting them down. But I know this is true. If forests like the redwood forests were growing everywhere on the continent and they were as common as jack pine, we'd be harvesting some of them for some very exquisite lumber for our decks, wouldn't we? I'm pretty sure. Now, I know some would gasp at that very idea. This is an extreme example of how much mankind has denied the image of God. And think of it, and it's an extreme sense. Our society celebrates abortion, killing the unborn for convenience, the opposite, total opposite of being fruitful and multiplying. Society celebrates it. But be assured of this, you will be imprisoned or fined a half a million dollars for killing a bald eagle. And I'm not for killing bald eagles. But it's upside down, is it not? Now, ultimately, ruling the land means being a steward of it. It's not ours. We must rule it so it produces more. Why? For the sake of human flourishing. Now, we are sinful people, and the way in which we have ruled the land is certainly flawed. But we are not to abdicate that responsibility. We still bear the image of God. Jesus affirmed the principle of, of industry and stewardship in the parable of the talents. You know it. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded them and made five talents more. The same principle applies to ruling the land. We are here to cause it to produce and reproduce for the sake of human flourishing. So as humans, God has given us this collective authority over every other creature on the earth everything that flies above or swims in the water, we are to steward it because our primary task is to fill the earth. Third, this is the ultimate point. We've been created in God's image to enjoy Him forever. Now, as I think back on my childhood, as I think back on all of the things that my parents did for me, and in my adult years, now I can appreciate it far more. They provided me what I needed. They sacrificed in so many ways so that I could flourish. And they needed no payment from me for what they provided. It was their delight for my spiritual and physical well-being. They raised me in the faith. And it was to their glory, ultimately, that I grew up and thrived in the world. And I get this now. 
And you know this, parents, one of the joys of parenting, and I would say now <laughs> grandparenting, is, is providing for your little ones. And you know, even before they know to ask, even before they're, they're, they're influenced by, by the consumer culture, you buy them something that delights them. And part of the joy of that is, is getting down on the floor with them and putting that train track together or, or pushing the imaginary dirt with the excavator toy. And you know what? Even when they're grown, you might gather your children and grandchildren and provide a special meal that you know they would like, that they would appreciate as they gather together. And parents, if your motives are right, you give these good gifts simply because you want your children to enjoy them. And when they enjoy the good gifts you've given, they are, in a sense, enjoying you. Now, God, the creator of everything, he provided a land, and he made it ideal for human habitation. He made man in his own image to populate that land. And in that land, God put everything, everything so that they would thrive and that they would enjoy fellowship with their God. It glorifies God when his children enjoy his good gifts. Look at verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So plants, and, and they're for the animals too, but, but the fruit trees, you shall have them for food. God gives. So God gave fruit trees. Now, I want you to think about fruit. Now, we need to eat to live, right? But among many other things God has given us to live, God gave fruit. Fruit is sweet to the taste. It is a delight. And so eating fruit is not merely a biological transaction that inputs the required amount of carbs and fiber and vitamins and whatever else is in food for nutrition. Fruit is sweet. Fruit is enjoyable. Yes, eating is necessary, but it's enjoyable and satisfying too. And I would suggest to you that, that what is true of fruit is true of everything else that God has given. God has provided not only for our survival and sustenance, but also for our flourishing and joy. That's why God gives. So that we find our joy in Him. Now, because God is perfect in nature, the truest thing that God Himself does is seek His own glory. In effect, God enjoys demonstrating his goodness. And as image bearers of God, for us, for mankind, the truest thing we can do is give God glory. And how can we do that? One of the ways that we can do that is by enjoying the good gifts that he has given. God gets glory when we enjoy what he has given in the knowledge that he has given it. The psalmist says this, Taste and see. Did we sing this? Yes, we did. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So what do we do with all that God has given? Be content and be grateful 
and acknowledge that it came from the Lord. Be content ultimately in the Lord. Now that is the ideal. And you may be wondering at this point, how do we get to the gospel here? Here's the reality. This is sad. We're not always content, are we? And there's a good reason for that. The reason is sin. Now, as we think back in the story, and we're going to get to this, the sin of God's first image bearers. Sin entered their hearts and they became discontented with all that God had given him. All the richness of the land, they became discontented with that and what they did instead was set their desire on one single thing that God had forbidden them, that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that sin of discontent rather than receive from the Lord's hand and delight in all that he had given them, they set their sights on the thing that he'd forbidden them. And that sin in their hearts corrupted everything. And first what it did was it marred the image of God in them. The image remains, but that image became blurry, kind of like looking through a foggy window. That's the first thing that happened. It marred the image of God in them. But the second thing that happened, it brought a curse on creation. It brought a curse on creation and on all those who were born after Adam's image, and that's including us. So that the very things that God made and gave for human flourishing, those things also became marred and corrupted, and they didn't give the same enjoyment that they once did. So sometimes we'd take the bite out of what looked like a beautiful apple only to find worms. The serpent slithering through the fruit trees spoiled not only the fruit, but the one seeking it. And as a result of that, and again, like I said, we'll get to that in chapter 3. As a result of that, man was banished from that good land and he was cursed to wander east of Eden discontented now with his lot, but somehow still longing for the good land to be restored, and that is us. Because of our sin, we don't live up to our identity as image bearers, do we? Instead, instead of fill, we abuse the earth. Instead of stewarding it, we wreck it. And in it, we are miserable because we forgot the one who gave us everything in the first place. But here's the good news. And really, as we think about how Genesis unfolds, it is the grand story of God giving everything and man trading away it all and then God providing a way for that to be restored. But we'll skip to the end of the story because we need that this morning. Because we live east of Eden. That ideal land has been corrupted and we along with it. But God has provided a way for our joy to be restored. God has provided a way for his image in us to be made new again. And he has done this through the most glorious gift for our eternal flourishing. James 1, it says this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his will, 
He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What's that word of truth? That word of truth is the gospel of Christ that proclaims who Jesus is, as it says in Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You see, where Adam failed as a son created in the likeness and an image of God, where Adam failed, the eternal son of God took on a human body, was given the name Jesus, and took Adam's place to fulfill for us what Adam could not. Colossians 1.18 says that he, referring to Christ, is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because of Adam's sin, our first parent, And because of our sin, there is strife between us and God. And we're even at odds with the very land that God gave us to rule, first to to fill, then to rule and to enjoy. We're at odds with that land because we're at odds with God. Yet through the cross, Jesus made us whole and he brought us near to God again. And as the divine son, Jesus perfectly revealed the image of God. And he succeeded where Adam failed. And it is through Christ alone, and this is our hope, brothers and sisters, it is through Jesus Christ alone when we are united to him by faith that you and I can truly enjoy God's good gifts. So where are you this morning? We're all wandering east of Eden, longing for the land. But this morning, if you're looking to build the kingdom of God, if you're looking to construct your own ideal place, you will find that a futile exercise. The way back to the land is through Jesus himself. And through Jesus himself, we can indeed truly multiply And fill the earth with disciples, those who acknowledge him as Lord and Christ. And through Jesus, we can properly steward the things that he's entrusted to us. And through Jesus, and even though there is still frustration in this world, through Jesus, we have the hope of an eternal land a place where there will be no more corruption, no more sin, no more frustration, but forever enjoying the good gifts that God has given to us in His Son, Jesus. So where are you this morning? If you're wandering, look to Christ and find your way back to the promised land. Let's pray. God, we are grateful grateful for Jesus who succeeded where Adam failed and through whom we can find our way back to you. We thank you for him. We thank you that he is God 
Thank you that he died and rose again. Lord, grant us grace to keep our eyes fixed on him, not to lament what's broken in the world, but to trust that in him everything will be made right. Keep us faithful for the day of his return. And we pray all of this for his glory.